Hey, it's Brandon here and I have some big news. Seven Figure Millennials is now beyond curious. I am so excited for this new brand and I would highly encourage you to go check out episode number 140 for all of the juicy details. But as a teaser for episode 140, the central question for Seven Figure Millennials, the original show from the beginning was, how can we become financially successful and have a big impact while prioritizing our happiness, health, and relationships? I spent over 1,000 hours researching this question and published 139 episodes. And after all of that, I have an answer. And I put together that answer in a legit masterclass that weaves together clips from previous guests all to answer that question. So if you wanna hear my answer, the why behind Beyond Curious and the vision moving forward, go check out episode number 140. But you are here listening to this episode, which I know is amazing, but I would just highly recommend you also check out episode number 140 for the full explanation behind the rebrand. All right, here's your episode. Greetings and namaste and welcome to today's episode of Seven Figure Millennials where together you and I are on a mission to prioritize our happiness, health, and relationships as we make our entrepreneurial dreams a reality. And if this is your very first episode, I want to say welcome. So excited to have you here. If you're returning, welcome back. You know how much I appreciate you for coming back week after week. And today, whether you are a new friend or an old friend, we get to hang out with Michael F. Shine. Michael is the head hype man at Microfame Media, a company that specializes in making consultants and coaches famous in their fields. Some of his clients have included eBay, Magento, the Medici Group, University of Pennsylvania, Gordon College, University of California, Irvine, United Methodist Publishing House, Rico, LinkedIn, and Citrix. His writing has appeared in Fortune, Forbes, Inc., Psychology Today, and Huffington Post, and he is a speaker for international audiences spanning from the northeastern United States to the southeastern coast of China. His book, The Hype Handbook, 12 Indispensable Success Secrets from the World's Greatest Propagandists, Self-Promoters, Cult Leaders, Mischief Makers, and Boundary Breakers, published by McGraw-Hill, appears where books are sold. And this is me adding my little bit of flair to the bio. This comes from the description of the book. But it's basically all about how you can master the art and science of using shameless propaganda for personal and social good. Imagine if you could generate and leverage hype for positive purposes like legitimate business success, helping people, or affecting positive change in your community. So that is what the book is all about. And in this episode, as always, you're going to learn so much, but I want you to look up for three specific things. Number one, why Shep Gordon, the famous American talent manager who's managed talent like Pink Floyd, Pointer Sisters, Alice Cooper, all those cool cats, he paid a driver to have their truck break down that had a picture of Alice Cooper posing naked with only a boa constrictor covering his genitals. (laughs) So you'll find out right in the beginning why Shep Gordon did that and the results of doing that. Number two, how bacon and eggs became the stereotypical American breakfast at the hands of a hype artist and what that has to do with you building relationships that can grow your business. And number three, what you can learn about how to attract attention from Buddy the Elf in the Christmas classic movie Elf. So all that to look forward to in this episode. And the last thing I will say is actually two more things I'll say. One, ethics. I know Michael does a fantastic job of teaching this from the perspective that is designed to help the good guys like you listening to this win. So make sure like Uncle Ben says in Spider-Man with great power comes great responsibility. So you are using these powers for good. So that's thing number one. And thing number two, I want to give a shout out to the person that made this incredible episode happen. And that is AJ Jacobs, who was a previous guest on the show. And he recommended and introduced me to Michael. So AJ, uh, if you happen to be listening to this episode, I appreciate you so much. So with all that said, with all everything that you know that you can be looking forward to, please enjoy this incredible conversation with Michael F. Shine. If you had to pick between A, making a ton of money, B, being happy, healthy, and surrounded with people you love, or C, making a meaningful impact on the world, which would you choose? The good news is that today we don't have to choose. So the question is, how can entrepreneurs like you and me, who have a vision for our lives and aren't willing to settle for anything less, how can we become financially successful and have a big impact while prioritizing our happiness, health, and relationships? You and I are on a mission to find out, and we have an incredible journey ahead of us. My name is Brandon Fong, and welcome to the Seven Figure Millennials Podcast. Michael, welcome to the show. Super excited to have you here, my friend. It's been a long time coming. I'm happy to be here. 
Yes, I can't wait to dive in. And you have so many hilarious and awesome stories inside of your book. And so we'll be diving all over the place. I always like to kind of pick one to, and I don't know if this is in alignment with being a hype man, but I like to, I like to pick a story that drops us and really sets the scene for everything. So I went through at all my highlights of the book and I was like, which one could we start with that would kind of introduce the topic and get people excited? And one of my favorite ones from the book is the one that has to do with Alice Cooper and uh, a photo that was taken of him in, in London. So I, I, so just so people have a little bit of context, this is kind of a hype man at his at his height here, uh, using some of his his skills to generate some curiosity. So I figured this would be a great way for us to just dive in, and then we can pick apart all the incredible stuff afterwards. Yeah, I love that story as well. You know, Alice Cooper in the seventies really was very shocking to a lot of people. It's funny now for those of us who still think about Alice Cooper, we think of this golf playing kind of religious family man who does a show. But at the time he was really considered a threat to the youth by a lot of parents. And that was not by accident. They had this manager named Shep Gordon who famously didn't really love their music. He was their drug dealer, or I don't think he was their drug dealer. He was a drug dealer for a moat for a community around this motel in LA that a lot of the famous rock stars of the time frequented sold pot mainly and at some point someone gave him the advice that you know uh, what they said to him was you're Jewish I think it was Jimi Hendrix and and he's like my manager's Jewish a lot of managers are Jewish so we need to hook you up with a band so that you have a front so they hooked him up with this band that no one really liked called Alice Cooper And since Shep Gordon didn't like their music, he basically encouraged them to be as theatrical as possible. So they were the first shock rock band. They had, you know, decapitations on stage and all all kinds of crazy theatrical stuff. And what Shep Gordon realized is there comes a point in every young person's life where they want to separate themselves from their parents, especially then. It was like the height of the, the generation gap. And a lot of bands at the time were trying to get on the cover of Rolling Stone and really trying to promote their bands. And what Shep Gordon said is, you know, we shouldn't do that. We should try to get on the cover of Newsweek and Time as a threat, as every parent's worst nightmare. Because if we make every parent in America hate us, then every kid in America will love us, right? (laughs) So um, they did very well with that strategy and they became a big band in the United States, but they still hadn't cracked England, which was a very hit place at the time for various reasons. And so they had a show booked at Wembley Arena and it was about two weeks before the show and they had sold like 500 seats, which is nothing, especially for an arena. So uh, Shep Gordon, their brilliant uh, hype artist of a manager, essentially... He basically had this amazing, groundbreaking idea. He hired a truck driver to carry this giant billboard of Alice Cooper, the singer, with naked with a boa constrictor covering his private parts and nothing else. And if you've ever seen Alice Cooper, he's not like Burt Reynolds of the you know Playboy. He's not the best. It's kind of a weird looking guy. A giant thing. And then he basically paid the driver to break down the truck in the middle of Piccadilly Circus, which is like Times Square. So it's heavily trafficked um, at at the height of rush hour. So what happened was the thing broke down, massive traffic jam. Everyone was face-to-face with this very strange-looking man with naked with a boa constrictor on his, you know, covering his nuts, basically. And <laughs> there were traffic helicopters everywhere, you know, news helicopters covering the weather, the, the traffic. So they beamed that back to every station in England. This thing, adults got so worked up about this that it came before Parliament. People were saying we should ban him from the country. And they sold out the arena and became one of England's biggest bands. So uh, awesome story. And what it also demonstrates is one of the core hype principles that I talk about. And that's if you really want to become known uh, and, and really drive a lot of emotion and activity around whatever it is that you're putting out into the world, it's much more effective to drive a wedge, you know, to, to make your in to make a certain out group hate you or really disagree with you because that'll bond the people you really want to meet and, and influence much more tightly to you. It's much more effective to do that than to go out in the world and talk about how great you are and mm-hmm. try to win people over. 
Yeah. And, and obviously I think I probably should have, I probably said this in the intro, but I'll say it again, like ethics, ethics, ethics on all these different things. And I love how you've taken the approach of studying all these hype artists and making sure that we're applying it in the best case possible. And I think that that is a principle that's one of those fine lines, but it's really powerful when you take a stand for what you believe in and people naturally, I think you studied some study, some anthropological studies about like, that's actually wired into our human DNA is that we have like in groups and out groups. And so it actually taps into kind of who we are. So I love that first story. And I, I love the imagery of Alice Cooper's billboard in the middle of uh, time or Piccadilly, Piccadilly circus. And I, so we'll, we'll go into lots of lots more hype stuff. Did you have something you wanted to add? Michael? Yeah. I just want to say about the ethical thing, and we can talk about this all day and, and it absolutely is more or less my mission on this planet to help the good guys get their hands on these right. really valuable strategies. That being said, I, I think Shep Gordon and Alice Cooper are an example of hype at its best in that hype can add a lot of color to the world, right? Obviously, in-groups and out-groups can be used to do a lot of harm, and we've seen that a lot, right, especially in our, our modern era. But at the end of the day, Alice Cooper was art, and having all of the hubbub around it, having all of the parents wringing their hands, you know, about the threat to the youth, having this crazy theatrical thing where art and life mix together, that's amazing. That's what makes the world more colorful. So the best hype artists, and this is in business too, your Richard Branson's, whoever it is, add color to the world. Hype can be really a force for making um, making things more interesting and, and bringing some positivity into people's lives. So it, it, the ethical part is true, but also it goes beyond that, that I think hype can actually be a proactive force to make life a lot more interesting and fun. Yeah. So let's let's dive a little bit deeper on this topic then, because I think that this is something that you address in the book that you do a really good job about is like addressing what hype is, because I think out of context, lots of people think about hype is just like making a big noise and making a big splash. And it is. But I think you kind of explain a little bit more of an intricate definition of what hype is. So could you kind of share a little bit about your perspective on that? Well, first of all, I'll admit that I'm totally stealing the word and, and redefining it. I mean, you know, and, and that's been done before. The word queer used to mean weird, weird like a misfit. And, you know, the, the uh, LGBTQ community took it and, and repurposed it as something quite positive. So, um, you know, hype traditionally is a negative word. It means when, when you have something that doesn't really have a lot of inherent value um, drumming a whole lot of attention around it to get people interested in it. And um, the reason I felt comfortable giving it a slightly different definition is because there's always been one community that has used hype in a positive way, and that's the world of hip-hop. So in, in rap and in hip-hop, hype has never been, been considered a negative. And the reason I believe for that is that, you know, it comes out of the South Bronx, which is the poorest zip code in the United States, and it became the biggest musical genre in the world. And there's been a lot of great, great music from that genre. And it's never been considered a negative in hip hop to hype something up. In fact, there was a hype man as part of old rap groups that they were part of, they would, they would be allowed to rap on record. And they were in charge of getting the crowd hyped up and getting everyone, getting the, the group known. So I thought that was a really interesting metaphor for what hype can be. So, so the way I define hype is any set of activities that can get a large number of people highly emotional so that they'll take an action that you want them to take, you know, in mass, that they'll, that they'll move a certain way you want them to move. And that can be a negative direction. It can be a negative action, but it can just as easily be a positive. But it's based on the idea that human beings in groups act how human beings in, in groups act, that there's no shoulds about it. We act how we act, and it's often very irrational. And you can either use that to create good in the world and add color to the world or, or do some nastiness. And, and um, yeah. I choose to believe that more of the good guys need, need that power. Absolutely. So let's let's equip some people with some hype superpowers to spread some more good and love in the world. I love love that. Before we go into some of the tactical stuff, though, I want to kind of un I want I want to go a few layers deeper and find out a little bit about why you landed upon this 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 topic. And so I don't know if this is going to take us there, but I'm going to take a stab at it. Tell us about WrestleMania 2230. Yeah. <laughs> um. I don't know if that is what got me to the topic, but um, <laughs> WrestleMania, okay. but, but, but it's, it could. I mean, so WrestleMania 2230, it is interesting that that was the topic I chose for the first short story I remember writing. I mean, 
I never wanted to own a business, right? I mean, I, I wanted to do something artistic, in particular writing. I mean, I, I we had this, um, I went to kind of a cool elementary school. They had a creative writing sort of special. You know, they would bring this teacher in every week and we would do creative writing and I loved it. And my stories tended to be really funny. And, and and I know that because the kids told me they were funny. And one of them was this WrestleMania story where I remember it was probably it probably took place in like the year that we're in now, because I wrote this story in probably 1985 or something. But I remember Mr. T came in on like a flying car or something like that. But anyway, <laughs> um, that that was what got me into writing. But now that you bring up wrestling, and I just liked wrestle, wrestling back then. But now that you bring up WrestleMania, I, it's funny. I studied professional wrestling a lot um, when I wrote this book. And, and the stories didn't really end up making their way into the book. But I think that concept undergirded the whole thing because wrestling has for a long time been a medium that blurred the distinction between reality and hype. And um, I don't want to get into politics, but it's kind of ironic that probably the biggest hype man we've ever had as president um, is literally in the wrestling hall, the WWE Hall of Fame. So it's kind of interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I I figured I took it. I took a stab at that because I mean I saw I highlighted from the book. It's like you wrote this story in the second grade, and I think that it's always fun to see the early seeds of genius that your little self shows. You know, it's obviously something if you if you were writing a story that got all your your friends excited. I actually and the reason why I wrote that too is because when I was in second grade, one of my favorite books was called uh, Wayside Stories from. You know, sideways stories from Wayside School oh, by yeah. Lewis Sockhart. That Sakhar. guy wrote Holes as well. Hole, which is a gr- I read that to my daughter. He's a great, yeah. he's a great kids writer. Yeah, he's really a- exactly. Good. Yeah, but each each chapter was a chapter about each kid in the class, and it was some wacky, weird yeah. thing that these kids were into. And so I wrote a element. I wrote a version of that for my elementary school. And so as soon as I read that sentence in your book, I'm like, it brought back this flood of memories where I would write a chapter about each of my students, and everybody really liked it. And so <laughs> obviously cool. that kind of gave you maybe maybe in, maybe I guess we didn't, maybe you haven't unpacked it this way, but to me that seemed like a very clear line that that was like an entry into your world of understanding what it takes to actually articulate something in a way that gets people excited about our, a story. So I love that well, you had early seeds of that. You hit on something interesting, too, because I think, I mean, this is somewhere I've never gone on an interview or a podcast, so we'll see where it takes us. But <laughs> I, I am fascinated what with what gives people the obsessions that they have, right? And I think a lot of it's subconscious. So I, I still like to write fiction, and I never stopped. I used to play music. Um, and I... All of the stuff I've ever created, I've written a lot about religious leaders. I've written about cults. I've written about now I have this nonfiction book about hype. I've written about, you know, um, certain narcissistic people who can get their way. So I don't know. There's probably something in my psychology or in my family background that makes me interested in, you know, in these, you know, there there is a commonality between writing about hype as a as a forty something, and writing about professional wrestling as a little kid, and and being in a band that was the exact opposite in my twenties of a guy in blue jeans strumming a guitar, where we were all about theatricality and being over the top. So I don't know. Help me unpack that maybe because that's really interesting. What are these subconscious uh, elements that drive our obsessions? Kind of interesting. I just like I don't know if this is just because of the way that I interview or the, the questions that I ask, but I find so often that interviews go the route of you know people uncovering early seeds of their genius when they were little and they didn't quite make the correlation or the parallel quite yet. And it's like the the more that you can study those, the more that you can examine them and turn them into a strength, which is something that I know you talk about with um, Thomas Edison. I think later later in your book is like identifying those things that maybe even you view them as a weakness in the past, but you can turn that into a strength. So um, yeah, that's just my observation is that oftentimes that lots of the things that you have in childhood are indications of what might happen in the future. And like you said, it could be a, a subconscious thing too. So well, um, Brandon, I am uh, fascinated. Thank you. I'm usually the one answering the <laughs> questions and now you've got me really thinking. So thank you for this. Well, there you go. And I can point you in a few episodes that have gone that in the, that direction too. So that that might be exciting for you. But let's dive into some. Now people, I know people are really excited about some of these concepts that we've been talking about. And there's 12 hype principles. So I kind of picked some of my favorites, and I thought that maybe we could start with uh, a few of the ones that I that really stood out to me. So uh, one of them that stood out to me is one of my favorite foods of all time is bacon. And I didn't realize that that um, there's there was some hype artist that might have been in charge with the fact that that is my favorite meal. So would you mind telling? 
telling us a little bit about our Edward Bernays, um, and then we can talk a little bit about the piggy piggybacking principle as a result of that. Yeah, uh, one of the great things about writing a nonfiction book, especially on a topic that not many people know that much about, is that the research brings up things you never would have considered. So I, <laughs> I right, so. I discovered this this guy from who who was at his peak in the twenties, the nineteen twenties, um, named Edward Bernays, who it turns out was one of the most influential twentieth century Americans that very few people knew who he was at the time. So he he invented the field of public relations. He coined the term, uh, and he originally didn't call it public relations. He called it propaganda, and. <laughs> Um, the reason he changed it was because, you know, after World War One and then in World War Two, when he was still alive, that got a, a bad name. But public relations for all you PR executives out there. Now, you know what you're really doing. Right. Um, but, yeah, this guy, he, he, he would work behind the scenes. He was Sigmund Freud's nephew. And he he was responsible. So he was pretty much responsible for women smoking. Women smoking was a massive taboo. And um, he, he, the suffragette movement was happening, and he uh, did this light up torches for liberty thing because um, Lucky Strike was his his uh, you know client, and he wanted to open up the the woman market. I mean, he he basically had a country overthrown, a government overthrown for the United Fruit Company, and so the bacon story that you're talking about. So Edward Bernays had Beechnut as a client. Now we think of Beechnut as either either those little candies or um, baby food. But how they really made their name, they were one of the major pork producers in the U.S. And, you know, now I actually did a talk in China and I asked the audience, what do you think of as the of the stereotypical American breakfast? And, and like half the room said bacon and eggs. Right. <laughs> but before before the 20s, uh, Americans didn't tend to eat bacon for breakfast. You know, they ate a lighter breakfast and uh, Beach not wanted Edward Bernays to up pork consumption, bacon consumption. So he had spent years nurturing this relationship with a really influential doctor who himself himself had connections with like 5,000 doctors across the country. He was an academic as well as other things. And Edward Bernays basically got this guy to commit to create a study that said that bacon is the perfect health food for breakfast because it replaces the energy that you lose during sleep. So this doctor sent the study out to countless doctors across the country. And before long, every doctor in America was recommending bacon. And so without one advertisement, Americans were eating bacon, you know, <laughs> for breakfast. So, yeah. That's so, it's so obscure, but I, I love the parallel that you drew in the book is that like, there's, there's basically like two ways that you can build an audience. There's the way where you build like slow and one at a time, or you can work to do exactly what Edward did is it, he identified like a keystone relationship fostered a strategic alliance with this guy and in one fell swoop, you know, and without a single dime of advertising was able to kind of incorporate an entire message. And so I think that that is something that I, I love this chapter so much because I, as a podcaster, that's one of the things that, you know, one of the motivations of this relationship is not only to produce content for you listening right now is, but to incredible develop incredible relationships with people like Michael that are hanging out on the show. And this is like a, a brilliant principle that if you want to spread your message and if you want to open the doors to strategic relationships in your life. And if you're somebody like Edward Bernays and you want to get your message out, sometimes you don't have to do it one at a time, but rather by building upon that. So I guess, do you want to share a little bit more on that? Because that was my big takeaway from this section. Yeah. And that, that's absolutely the takeaway. And I think what you're doing with the podcast is really smart. So I want to say two things about this, and they're almost at opposite ends of the spectrum around this idea, which I do call the piggybacking method, which, which you mentioned. So on one end of the spectrum, I, I want to put out there that this is not the moral of this story is not to encourage someone to produce a fake study to deceive the public. That, that is what he did, right? So the whole concept <laughs> here is taking the underlying psychological principles from some, some nasty characters and seeing is there an underlying psychological principle that can work without the nastiness, right? So we don't want to be falsifying studies and putting people's health in danger. We have good reason to believe that Edward Bernays paid off this doctor and that this doctor was obviously very unethical. But what is the lesson? The lesson is there are certain human pressure points in every ecosystem. For whatever reason, this physician had, through means, you know, 
ethical or non-ethical, he made himself somehow into an authority that thousands and thousands of other physicians trusted. So what Edward Bernays did, instead of reaching out to all those doctors, he somehow fostered a relationship with this one human pressure point and piggybacked off that pressure point. So the trick here is to find who are the human pressure points in your ecosystem, the people that with one word can spread your idea far and wide, and then find ethical ways to get them to spread the word really persuasively on your behalf. So what are those ethical ways? Well, what a lot of us think about is networking. And I would say that this goes beyond networking. To me, what networking is, it's become this thing. And and Brendan, you can tell me if you've seen this, but where it's become very formulaic. Like, have you ever seen this thing where you go to a networking event and then you get home and someone sends you like five emails John meet Bill, Bill meet John, you have a lot to talk about, you know, and, and, and that's <laughs> nice. And that's a start. But what they haven't done is really thought about they're following a formula. It's like I'm just making these introductions, right? What you want to think about is what is something that you can give up and help someone with that's cheap for you to give up and remarkably valuable for someone else. So let's take this podcast as an example. I happen to know because of the person who recommended me to this show, and because I've done a little bit of research that this show has a lot of prestige and has um, a big following. So that's remarkably valuable to me. I'm promoting a book and I'm promoting a business, right? So for you to give me that opportunity to get my message out, gives you a special a special place in my heart that I won't forget. <laughs> For you, though, it's relatively cheap. I don't mean financially, meaning, yeah, you have to have great guests on your show, but you're not paying for this airtime. There's no bandwidth restriction. You need the content. I'm giving you free content for all intents and purposes. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. The cost of a podcast financially are much cheaper than a television show or whatever. So you've essentially done something that helps yourself that's very, very easy and relatively easy and inexpensive for you to give up that's remarkably valuable for me. And that's what you need to be thinking about instead of networking. If you, I call it personal arbitrage. If you can always be looking for opportunities to do that and thinking in terms of that instead of following a networking formula, that's when you build a circle of people around you who will just do anything for you. And it's a very, very powerful kind of way of being in the world. Yeah, love that. And I'm taking improv classes right now, so I'm trained to say yes and. So I'll say I'll say yes and to that. I think that uh, uh, thing that I I I attempt to do with the podcast, or I, I do do with the podcast, is take a really long term approach with all the relationships with the guests. I think way too many people try to microwave a relationship. You know, some people will have a, a podcast where they interview someone and then try to push a sales message on someone. The worst that they hang up. You can record- never. <laughs> yeah, that, the worst thing you can possibly do. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. But it's like I I view every relationship that I have in it is like I have in, I read at people's books. I take the time to invest in them and I make connections between the people that are on my show. And like, eventually it's like you have a great relationship with somebody that like you actually want to work with. And like, I think that that's a really, I'm glad that you highlighted that as well Is that like, it's not just about the tit for tat introductions. It's like, can you make the real meaningful introductions? And, um, that those are the ones that really make a lasting difference. So so, so yeah, yes, I'll, and to you, yes, and to you. So I'm going to, so no, that's a great point because I'm going to use a gendered term, but it can apply to men and women. Have you ever heard the term, the old boys club? Yes. Yeah. So people talk about that in a derogatory way. What they usually say is, ah, those people, the only reason they're successful is because they're surrounded with an old boys network, an old boys club. You know, that's because they come from old money or they went to an Ivy league or this and that, and they're a male and you know, they, 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 they're privileged. And that's true. What I'm saying is you can create your own old boys network and it's an old boys network that can include women. So people in an old boys network, they don't go to the country club and say, Hey, I'm going to introduce you to someone and you'll introduce me to someone that's transactional. They just make powerful people, their friends, the Rockefellers and the Vanderbilts play golf together. And they don't talk about business nine out of 10 times. But would you rather call a Rockefeller when you need a, when, you know, hey, I'm thinking of starting a new business. Let me call my, 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 my good old friend, Joe Vanderbilt. Or would you rather call the person you met at the networking event, you know, at, at Wings and Beers Tuesday, 
right? So it's a function of what's that circle you're surrounded with. It's a, it's a self-reinforcing group. And, and when I really learned this, you know, I, I never knew about networking, but I'm just, you know, I happen to be a friendly person and, and, and like people a lot. And so when I heard about the concept of networking, when I went into business for myself, um, I would go to a lot of networking events and um, networking groups, and I, I had nothing because I was brand new, and I was with a lot of solopreneurs like me. So it turned out I was very good at this thing called networking. So I would get opportunities to make sales, and then the people would you know, come, and I would tell them what I charged, which was a lot less than I charge now, and their faces would go white because they had no money just like I had no money. So I would say, well, what if the only thing I changed was that I elevated the circle that I was in, not in terms of anything, I mean, a personal worth, but in terms of like achievement or a ability to spend. So I looked for those groups and, and the way I did it was I, I had the ability to get a press pass. So it was very, because I wrote a column for Inc. at the time, and I wrote every conference that cost $5,000 to get in. And I said, hey, I'll write about your um, conference if you let me in on my press pass. It's very cheap for me. I needed to write an article a week. But they put me in every conference for free. So now I'm mingling with people who paid $5,000 a ticket, and those became my new friends. And everything exploded, but not overnight. They just became the people I started to hang out with and people who like each other do favors for each other. Mm -hmm. Love that. I, I mean, there's so many places I want to go and I have so much, so many notes for this conversation. So I'll, I'll, I'll ask one more story on, under this topic and then I want to add on to, on top of it. And I want to get your thoughts on something, but, um, tell us a little bit about David Bowie and the, in the, in the guy that got the interview because of asking him about the saxophone. Yeah, no, great segue because this is, this is the way to do it. Right. So there was a journalist in the 70s when David Bowie was at his peak in 1972 when he was Ziggy Stardust. And a music nerd like me knows that part of the Ziggy Stardust thing was he created this mystique. So he, he was making himself out. He was this alien rock star. So he gave very limited access to, to interviews, right, because he wanted to control the message very closely. And this one very, very young journalist wanted to do a, a piece on him and, you know, didn't have the credentials to get in. So he called up David Bowie's representation and he said, I'd like to do a piece. And they almost hung up on him. And before they could, he said, on David Bowie's saxophone playing. Now, what most people don't know about Bowie is that sax was his first in instrument. And if you listen to Bowie records, as I do, because I'm obsessed with him, <laughs> he um, there's a lot of saxophone on David Bowie records and he's playing the sax. Right. And he's not known for that. So everyone asks him about his songwriting, about his looks, about his changing personas, but they never ask him about his sax playing. And he loves sax playing. So this was a thing that he wanted to talk to this guy about. So the guy got in and then it went on from the sax playing and became this really sort of career making piece. And, and the point of that is, you know, everybody is a human being, even David Bowie, although that's arguable, but um, <laughs> you know, every, everybody is a human being. And if you put yourself in a subservient role, like, oh, you know, Mr. You know, Mr. Fong, I'm such a big admirer of your show. Can I pick your brain about opportunities we can give to each other? You're just not going to talk to me, right? I mean, you have too much to do. But if I've spent a little time benevolently stalking you on social media and I find that you're just hyper into this sports team or this obscure hobby or whatever, some comedian or a band, and I talk to you about that, suddenly it's just two friends talking about a common interest and I'll get unprecedented access. Yeah. And so I want to, I want to add another dimension to this. And I'm, this is where I'm really curious to get your thoughts on this, but this is one thing that I'm very, and I've never talked about this on the podcast before, but I'm very intentional about this. When I do an interview with someone is I try to find the equivalent of the David Bowie saxophone for whatever that person is, because even if they've done lots of interviews, <clears throat> I usually try to ask the questions that they don't normally get to talk about. And I feel like that's really what bonds you. It's like, I, I mean, I, I could be like risking something here, but like how many people have asked you about WrestleMania 22? No, probably not that many people, Not, you know, zero. so, yeah. <laughs> zero. So it's like, yeah. so, so I try to find those things that, that I think, I think you can do this for you listening, whether you have a podcast or not, while you have conversations with people, it's not always just to get a foot in the door with someone like David Bowie, when you're asking about some obscure topic that they love talking about. It's like, what are those topics that you can 
build a relationship with a human in front of you because that really leads to a much deeper level of bond and relationship than if you were just having a surface level conversation the whole time. So that was, that was, I, I, I didn't realize I never made that correlation, but when I read that in your book, I was like, Oh, that's, that's another layer to that, that I didn't even realize. I would say that whether you did it on purpose or not, and I'd love to ask you how intentional this was, the, the, the WrestleMania question even went further. So yeah, on one hand, you asked me about a childhood experience and that enough, that alone is, is, is the right approach. But then you got me to talk about something that I'm really interested as a, in as a human being, not as a business person, which is the origins of taste. I've always been interested in why, why are people obsessed with what they're obsessed with. And I don't know that you just sort of seized on that and let me talk about it. Or if because you prepared, you saw me tweeting things about it. I don't know. But you got me to talk about something that isn't part of my official, official book promotion docket. It's just something I'm really <laughs> interested in. And that made me feel better about you and about this interview. So again, I'd love to hear how intentional that was or how you kind of got there. I will see so here. So here's my, the thing that I always look for is I look for, I look for questions that relate to the human. So here's another one that I, I skipped over this one, but I'll go back to it. Would you mind telling us a little bit about how rich, who Richard Lamer is? That was another one that I had for this section, but maybe that'll open it up as to, to, to <laughs> some of the secret is so do I ask these kinds of questions? So did you ask me that because in the acknowledgments, he was the only person who wasn't like a family member or someone directly related to the publication or editing of the book? It, yes, because I mean, you said I have it highlighted here. You, I mean, you spent countless dinners with him, schooled him, and what it takes to to be an author, speaker, marketer, business person. Like that's a relationship that means yeah. a lot to you, and yeah. that like clearly that person has influenced your life. And so I always love to ask those kinds of questions as well because I think that those are really special to everyone. Yeah. So so Richard Larimer is a close friend, and he's one of the friends I can count on on two hands that started as a business friend and isn't just kind of a friend, but like a real friend, like tell about when things are going wrong in your personal life, you know, would hang out and talk about anything other than business. So I have lots of professional friends, but this person has made the segue from like mentor and friend to like the kind of friend you have in high school or college. Yeah, right. That's awesome. Um, and yeah. And so uh, it's funny. Um, interestingly. Uh, so I worked, at a very corporate job. It's been years ago now. I mean, gosh, 13, 14 years ago. But it was this company that ran contact centers, you know. And uh, it, I was there when it turned from a very, like, I don't know, maybe $10 million in revenue to $100 million in revenue. So they brought in a formal marketing department. And one of the guys who came in, he had this book called Punk Marketing. And he said it was his favorite marketing book. And um, I looked at it and I like punk music, you know, or at least I did a lot when I was a kid. So I thought that was cool, especially because I was in this very gray world of like call center management and whatever. So um, I had the idea and the name in my head. And it was by this guy, Richard Larimer. So um, a couple of years later, I started my own business. I was living in Florida at the time. I moved back to New York and I was trying to do anything to get attention. So I started volunteering at this thing called New York Tech Council and doing anything like just like whatever I could do. And I eventually let convince them to let me run a panel of interactive marketing um, talks, you know, because they had not done that. So I was like, who can I invite to this panel? Like, I, I don't know anybody. And I was like, what about that guy, Richard Larimer? Like he, his book was really cool. So I just kind of like emailed him. I either emailed him or I saw, used these methods to find him. And I invited him onto the panel and he did it, you know. And then, um, so he owns a, a really um, sophisticated public relations company called RLM Media. One of the, you know, they, they, they do Wondery, for example. You know, Dr. Death, the, uh, that, that show, the podcast that became a show, and mm. Wondery that um, launched that. Anyway, he, he, he was responsible for a lot of that promotion, among many other things. And yeah, I don't know how it happened. I mean, he's probably 10, 15 years older than me. We would just talk about business stuff. And then we started having dinners. And he was a writer. He was a theater critic for the Times. He became a PR guy. And then he would just give me advice. And he was just remarkably generous with his time. So whenever I had a business problem, never wanting anything in return, he would just sort of give me advice. And he's very, very funny, which means a lot to me. I like funny people. And like, I think I'm a little bit funny. So he liked that. 
And I don't know, we just started becoming friends. I mean, we have a lot in common. We both like theater. So if he had theater tickets, he would invite me to go. And um, yeah, he, he just, um, it was one of those relationships where it was the opposite of transactional, but mm-hmm. I'm 20 times better business person for having known him. And hopefully I've helped him in some ways too. So yeah, he was the only beautiful. one who made the cut that wasn't directly related to the book or who wasn't part of my family. So, yeah. Well, it's, it's beautiful. And I, I love those kind of transformational relationships because everybody has those. And like, those are the things that really make or break you. And, and I mean, sometimes, especially when it's somebody that's a further down the road than you, it's like they can see at a level much further than you can possibly see. And it's like, sometimes they have that level of visibility that's going to prevent you from going through lots of uh, things that you would have to figure out the hard way. So that's so cool that he stepped into that role for you, which is, which is awesome. He's also never heavy handed about it. And again, please don't take this as gospel. This is just my sardonic personality. And, and there's a lot of problems with my personality in this regard. But I, I, I'm really a cynical person. I'm not a negative person, but I'm cynical. So when someone comes on too strong with the like gratitude, 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 you know, like positive this, got up at five in the morning and drank mushroom tea kind of stuff. Like I, I, <laughs> there's a part of me that's kind of like, okay, you know, where, where's, where, where's the angle here, you know? And Richard is a really successful guy, but it's always like, there's always like sarcasm and humor and it's never like a, it's never a hard sell. You know, he's just constant, like he never pushes his ideas on you. He shows things how they really are. And I just sort of appreciated that, but that's just me being an asshole. I'm just an asshole. So it worked for me. (laughs) A lot of people get a lot out of the other approach. So, you know. Yeah. Love it. Well, uh, thank you so much for sharing that story. And there's, there's so much more that I, I want to dive into here to, to go back on the track that we were before we took that little side tangent, which I'm glad we did, but, um, let's, let's go back into some of the hype strategies. So I want to, I want to go into, uh, the, the third one that you share, which is perfect your packaging. And, um, I am actually running a Spartan race later this year with my oh. wife, Leah, I've run all three Spartan races. And so I'm a huge fan of Spartan race and Joe DeSena. And I've, I've, met him very briefly once and watched this lunatic lug around this gigantic uh, what uh, what are those what are those what am I, why am i forgetting with a uh, kettlebell a kettlebell like a, but, a, for, a, but a it's ke- from like it's from, from like a from, quarry in Greece. from a yeah. quarry it's, yeah yeah exactly yeah. so so <laughs> yeah. um would you mind telling us a little bit about um i didn't know this what what spartan race was originally called and then how applying this strategy actually helped him transform spartan into what it is today yeah, so I had the opportunity to interview him, which was really cool in person. And he showed up with that giant kettlebell. It was like in Midtown Manhattan. It wasn't like a regular, like you said, it was a giant piece of ore. It looked like a meteorite with a metal handle grafted onto it. Um, he showed up with a big thing of raw vegetables that he was eating. And the guy's eyes like pierce your soul. I don't know if you noticed that he's got like these icy eyes that like, you know, pierce into your like soul. And very intense, you know. And um what I thought was interesting, and he came out and he said to me, and I love this, he goes, I'm a snake oil salesman. Like, he admits that he's a hype artist. But what he meant by that is that he always knew he had a good idea, but it wasn't the idea that made him successful. It was the selling of the dream, and it was the packaging. So um, I'm trying to tell the short version of this, but he was successful in some other fields, and he turned his health around uh, by doing things in his very intensive way, doing crazy exercise and all of this, right? And he decided he was going to help other people by turning that into a business. So he created this company called Peak Races. And it was basically Spartan races. I mean, it was the same grueling, intensive, you know, obstacle course races and, and, and all that. And he lost money. I mean, he, he, he was using his other business to fund that business. It was failing. It was bleeding money left and right. And he was like, I don't understand why this is failing because it was a good product and it is a good product right or service you mm-hmm. use it right yeah so um what changed everything is i i believe he saw the movie 300 and he realized that people were just their identity as spartans in you know is is what made them do these inhuman things 300 people defeating the greatest army in the world so what he did is he re he repackaged everything the exact same races as spartan races so if you take part in the spartan race you're a spartan and you yell the things that spartans would yell and all the imagery is spartan (laughs) aru right and it's austere (laughs) you know and and he makes the like pain a benefit the way the spartans did and now they go to sparta and it changed everything so now people identify as spartans and you know the lesson is packaging is not about the logo and the copy you put on the site it's about 
figuring out that thing that gives your the, the people who want to latch onto you a tribal identity and ruthlessly eliminating everything that's not that thing. And that's what he did. And it was defining. I mean, they would not be in existence if he hadn't made that change. Yeah. And you give other examples in the book I'd like to, but, you know, like Gary Vaynerchuk's group, the, the Vaniacs, or like, I mean, the one that I immediately think of is like ClickFunnels, the funnel hackers, you know, it's like giving someone he's, he's, a tribe he's great or a community at that. to believe. He's great. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, love yeah. that. And and this, this I didn't is mean actually, to talk uh, over, but yeah, Russell Brunson is a great example. Yeah, yeah, he's I, I love and his 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 book Expert Secrets actually kind of had lots of overlap to some of the stuff that he studied and that you studied. So maybe you guys had similar source material. I I the True Believer has been on my list for a long time and I haven't read it yet. And then I saw you mentioned the True Believer and and so now I have to, to read that one. But um, anyways, <laughs> the yeah, it's other a, it's a good book. Other, yeah, cool. I'll make sure to make sure to check that one out. Um, the this is I want to go deeper here because this is really interesting. I recently I don't know if it was a week ago or two weeks ago, but I had the opportunity to read uh, interview Todd Herman. I don't know if you know Todd Herman. He wrote the Alter Ego Effect, but it was really really interesting because it's like lots of what I've seen in in your book. It's funny that I just interviewed Todd, but it's like lots of these people that are creating these movements and these personas. It's like they're actively treating this persona that is leading this movement as something that is different than them. It's like it's like you have to kind of construct it and build it in a very different way. And that's something that you specifically talked about is like hype artists are very intentional about their look and like how they do things. And I'll be lying if I said that I, I was on some sites yesterday, but after reading your book, I'm like, I need to stick with like a color more specifically and like run with that more. And that, so would you mind sharing a little bit about some uh, tangible ways that if somebody kind of identifies this persona they want to create, or if they want to create a movement, what are some of the ways that we can make ourselves stand apart by constructing a persona or packaging ourselves in a way that kind of makes us stand out? Yeah, so let's talk about clothing, because on the surface, that seems so, like, how much of a big deal can, can clothing be, right? And, and you're right. If you think that, you're right. I mean, without the other stuff, it's not a big deal. But it's a great example of how packaging runs through everything, right? So when I first went into business as a professional marketer, I would wear a tie, and then what I realized was that when you go to marketing events, if you're wearing a tie, that means you're, you're a beginner because it means you're not a creative type person. So then I started wearing the uniform of blazer and, and white sneakers. But even that, that's like a cliched thing. So what you need to do is think to yourself, what is the, this kind of caricature version of what I'm trying to put out into the world, right? So think of it as like, like a a mixing board. So we all have many different aspects to our personality. Um, but what are those aspects that you want to highlight that tie into the thing you're selling? And then what the best people do is they execute that in everything. So um, to give you an example, I'm the hype guy, right? Now, there are a lot of other aspects to my personality. I was a you know, top student in school. I was a bit of a goody two-shoes, you know what I mean? But that doesn't fit like the punk rock image. So when I go to um, a conference now, I don't wear the blazer and white sneakers. I sort of dress like a mod. You know what I mean? I, I have this sort of like <laughs> sharp, you know, kind of early 60s influenced style that kind of shows, hey, I'm even creative in the way I dress. Those people are sort of mischief makers, et cetera, et cetera. Gary Vaynerchuk, is it an accident that he dresses like a slob? I mean, he doesn't shave. I mean, he has stubble, you know, mm -hmm. <clears throat> and he yeah. wears ski caps. <clears throat> and he wears hoodies. The guy's worth millions of dollars. Why does he dress that way? Part of it is that it's who he is. But also, <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> excuse me. Hopefully you can edit that out. <laughs> also, his first big commercial victory was Wine Library TV. And what made that good was he took the elitism out of wine. So he would come on there and he would talk to you know, this tastes like cinnamon toast crunch and he would curse and this and that. So he was selling wine to people who didn't feel snooty wine to beer drinkers. So if he had won a, worn a suit like everybody else that that's, that's a, a sommelier, it wouldn't have worked. So now he has this Gary V persona where he wears really cheap, scuzzy clothing. He could wear tailored suits, but that doesn't fit the brand. Yeah. And another thing, this or the is from, package, I, think, I should say, it's beyond brand. It's a package. Yeah. Yeah. 
this is another thing that you, I think it's, it's not in this particular topic, but I think it was when you're talking about being theatrical and this is something that anybody can apply right now. It's like, if you're on zoom meetings, like what is the background that you have behind you look like, you know, because it's like, I, I realized people took me way more seriously once I started putting studio padding and added a light behind me, <laughs> you know, it was before it was just like a normal wall, but like, that's another, I would say an element of your packaging as well. It's like our, I think you give this example in the book just off the top of my head. It's like, are, are, if you're a creative agency and you're sitting in your like spare office room and it's just like papers all over the place, that, that that's not in alignment and not in congruency with everything that you're supposed to be doing. Yes, but there's another layer to this. And the layer is don't just do the professional thing. You know, where a lot of people go wrong with this is, okay, so they, 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 um, by the way, my background isn't real. I'm not practicing what I preach here because I'm on a trip. I'm on a business trip. So I'm like in this uh, hotel room. So, but, but um, you know, what, what you have to think about is not what's professional, but what, what's the equivalent of your Spartan race or your Gary Vaynerchuk. So in other words, if you're in a really forward thinking creative agency, and in the back, you have one of those fake, like, profile, you know, those fake backgrounds that people do that's like, a, that looks like a lawyer's office, all browns and, and grays and, like, pictures of ships or whatever. That's professional. But what does that say that you're going to be a subversive creative agency? No. You know, so in back of me um, at home, some people will ask in my home office when I do podcast interviews, I have uh, um, horror comic book covers in the background. And that's not by accident. It's because that's, those, those are, you know, they were offensive. They were whimsical. They were hypey, right? Very over the top. Um, so you got to think in terms of that, not in terms of what's professional, you know, not everyone should have a Lamborghini just because Ty Lopez does. That's Ty Lopez's package. I'm, I doubt yeah. it's yours. No, <laughs> I, 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 to the listener, I, I, I don't mean you to the listener. You oh know? Yeah, 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 of course. Totally get it. Well, I, okay. So uh, first of all, I, I love that. And I love that we talked about the whole packaging thing. That's so awesome. I, I also want, I know we don't, we're kind of coming up on time here. So maybe we can kind of fit this last one in and then we can kind of start wrapping things up. Um, one of the, this is one of my other favorite examples from, uh, it was, uh, the principle number six, become a mage, magus. I don't even know if I pronounce that. Even right. I magus, pronounce magus. it differently every time. <laughs> yeah, sure. uh, yeah. But you give this example of, of uh, Buddy the Elf and, and how Buddy the Elf is an example of, of doing this correctly. So uh, do you mind explaining that a little bit and then how we can apply that principle as well? Yeah. So, so I mean, just to give a little bit of background, what a magus is, it's, it's um, where the word magician comes from. It was these people in ancient Persia who were kind of above the fray. They were these magician-like characters who would make predictions and they would they were seen to be magical. They would cast, you know, bones and leaves and herbs and burn things and come up with predictions of how the wars would go and wear special robes. And that whenever a new leader would come in and kill all the nobility of the of the previous rule, they would stay in power because they were seen as sort of these above the fray people with magical powers. So and they didn't have any magical powers. So it's very important. People are attracted to people who are larger than life, who are, who, who can accomplish um, great things. And there are ways to make yourself seem greater than, than you are, whatever that means, without lying. Because no one is really great. We're all human, right? So um, the Buddy the Elf example is, I always found it funny. It's funny to use a fictional character. But uh, if you remember that movie, um, Buddy is the worst elf in terms of his working ability because he's not an elf. <laughs> he's a human. So when he's in the Santa's workshop, they're like, Buddy... You know, and it's like, oh, my gosh, I only got done 98, you know, Etch-a-Sketches in like two hours or whatever. And like, it's all right, buddy. And then he overhears him like, eh, he's really slowing down the line. Right. Or whatever. <laughs> so the joke there is that he's terrible for an elf, but he did 98 Etch-a-Sketches in two hours. He, he assembled. So then he comes to Earth or not Earth, but the human world, whatever, New York City. And he he, you know is like magical. He comes to this department store and overnight he creates this wonderland overnight. He does 9,000, you know, paper, uh, what do you call them? Snowflakes and builds things out of sugar and just all these crazy things. And the joke there done for comic effect, obviously, is that what is like mediocre in one environment is totally magical and amazing in another, but we can do that in our own lives and, and we've seen it. So 
let's say um, you work at a literary agency where people are notoriously bad with technology, you know, or a publishing house, and you're really good with computers or you have some sort of technical background and you become known as the tech-oriented literary agent, you know, because you're so savvy with technology. And people are like, he's a computer whiz. She's a computer whiz. They know everything about technology. Whereas if you were in Silicon Valley, you'd be mediocre. Now, it reminds me, I remember, um, I'm 44 years old, so I was in ninth grade in 1991. And I had this one friend who had AOL, and he was really good at AOL. And my mom used to be like, he's a computer whiz. You know what I mean? Because he could do (laughs) chat rooms in AOL. So, right. I mean, he was, that's what it took to be a computer whiz in 1991, right? So, yeah. Yeah. I think that's, I mean, it's another elegant solution, I think, if you think about it this way. It's like maybe you're currently working in a environment or a context in which your skill sets are considered normal because you're you're applying them to the wrong world. But you can take that same exact skill right. set, transfer it to somewhere else, and immediately you become a, a wizard and you can, you know, impact more people as a result of that. So absolutely love that. So I mean, we, um, we see it all the time, don't we? I mean, we, we see the we see these you know, um, a video game designer who has a background in theater and they create a video game that is so heartwarming and nuanced and amazing that everyone in the video game world thinks it's this piece of art. But if they did the same thing in Hollywood or in novel writing, it would just be a novel, right? So it's, it's, we see it all the time. Yeah. And I mean, I guess another layer of that as well, it's like somebody that I study a lot is Jay Abraham. And like, that's kind of, you know, for anybody that doesn't know, Jay is like, he's like got marketing wizard guru and he studied all these different industries. But like you can, what, what he teaches all the time is that you can take what is considered a standard practice in one industry that everybody's like, yeah, it's the thing that everyone does. And, but you can take that and plop it into a different industry. And then that's magic right there is because people didn't even see it before, but it all of a sudden creates this explosion of activity and growth and all that other good stuff. So yeah. Cool. Um, do you have time for one more? Or should we start wrapping things I up? Do. Michael? No, 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 no. I do. I do. I do. Okay, cool. Let's do, let's do one more really quick here. I, I love this one. So I think that, um, I, I talk a, about this a lot when it comes to writing copy and about, you know, communicating with people. And I think I, there's this, there's a study, I'm not going to remember exactly where, but they did a, a study of the, the grade level of presidential candidates and the vocabulary that they use and the impact that that had on, on their ability to, to get presidency. And they found that like the, obviously the, the lower grade levels, the more people understood, the more people resonated with that. And that's something that you talk as a hype principle as well. Um, so we'd love for you to talk a little bit about the power of using language that, that actually penetrates people's minds and that kind of stuff in a way that we can, com- so we can communicate our messages more effectively. Yeah, no, so this is an it depends, right? So let's say you have a concept that is complete, that is truly complicated and truly new. And we think of being new as a good thing, but if something is too new, you'll lose people. You know, the guy who created, um, who came up with the idea that surgeons needed to wash their hands and, and that germs caused disease was, was Lister, the person who Listerine is named after, and he almost lost his license. I mean, people thought he was such a kook. You know, it took him like 20, 30 years to convince people of this. So if an idea is too new, we're, we're really resistant to change. So if an idea is new, what you want to do is ease people into things. That's when you use your very basic language, right? You use simple language. You use a lot of repetition. You, 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 you ease people into it. I call it giving the babies their milk before you give them their meat. If you give a baby pieces of hamburger, they're going to die. You have to start them off on the milk, right? However, a lot of us are in businesses where, and this is not a negative, but what we do isn't really that innovative. We're just competent, very competent. So let's say you're a consultant and you're just really good at operations and you have this business that can fix anyone's operations. There's nothing innovative about that. It's just good, you know? But it's really hard to distinguish yourself if you're, if the margin of what makes you better is small. So the way that you do that is you use exalted language. So we see this all the time. It, people get impressed by $5 words, by scientific lingo. It's a heuristic. People don't think to question what is this science. So an example I use is um, Simon Sinek, right? So Simon Sinek, for those of you don't, who don't know, yes, start with why, big book, um, has this massive company based around this. And um, there's nothing really groundbreaking about what he's saying. I mean, it's 
start with why. Have a reason for doing what you do, and, and you'll do better. But if you ever listen to him talk, you would think he, he, he had a science background. He talks about neurons and neuroepinephrine and, you know, all of this stuff. But he doesn't. He, he worked at advertising agencies. He's a professional marketer, but he knows that while his ideas are really helpful to a lot of people, they've been done before. And there's nothing wrong with that because they're good ideas. But in order for him to set them apart, he uses all of these scientific, exalted words. And the greatest example of that, he did this big, um, probably some of the listeners have seen it, this um, clip about why millennials are failing in the workplace. And he spoke with such great authority about how Parents gave them participation trophies and, and they're not equipped and everyone just nodded their heads as if he was a psychologist. Yes. And he talked about the neurology and the neuroepinephrine. I forget the words. He used these big words. And if you dig into what he was saying, there's a million ways you can destroy his argument. All millennials, <laughs> yeah. minority millennials. What are these participation trophies? Is that is that statistically proven? But the fact that he used the language of an expert made everyone just automatically accept what he said. So that's a powerful tool. So it really depends. You have your basic repetitive language when something really is difficult to digest. And when something is good and valuable but easy to blend into the woodwork, that's when you want to use exalted scientific language. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And obviously we don't have time to get into it, but like, if you want to go pick up the copy of the book, you can dive in. And the, uh, another part that I highlighted was about using specific, specific names with mental images, like Burger, Burger King is better than Sandwich King and Red Lobster is better than Red Seafood. You know, the things that kind of stick into people's brains. And that's a, that's a copywriting principles, obviously, or whenever you are communicating, if you can communicate in a way that gets people to retain your information is if you're putting kind of the pictures and the stories in people's heads and making it very specific. So lots that uh, I took away from that section. Concrete language, another interesting one. And this fascinated me. I knew this inherently because I was a copywriter, but when I found the, the, the origin of this, this, this was fascinating fascinating through my research things like rhymes and alliteration you know using the same initial sound is really really effective and repetition and that might seem so basic like oh i'm gonna write a jingle you know rhymes i mean that's really trite but the thing is the reason it's so effective is because the way babies learn language if you think about a baby learning language it's crazy you start off knowing nothing, and by one years old, you pretty much understand everything. And by three years old, you're fluent in hundreds of thousands of grunts and groans and squeaks and eeks that make up an incomplete symbolic system. And the way babies learn languages, our brains run statistics. So we look for patterns, you know, the, the repeating language in, in the language we're around the most. It repeats and repeats and repeats, and we group them. And so things like rhymes and things starting with the same sound and repetition, they make it easy for us to learn. So we're very attracted mm -hmm. to them. And that impulse doesn't go away when we're adults. So what, what is a rhyme? It's just a, a sound that like repeats itself, right? So we're very, very deeply wired because language is so important to humanity and learning language to respond really, really strongly to to language patterns like that. So these are not trivial things. These are very, very important things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there's uh, just lots of found, I love how lots of your work too. It's like, it's based on, you know, foundational principles. It's like, it's something that stood at the test, the test of time for this long. It's like, that means that there's something prominent here. And so you can go back to the, the Oglavies <laughs> and all the, all the copywriting principles, like that stuff is the stuff. You can go back to Julius Caesar. I mean, I yes, came, either. I saw, I conquered, <laughs> witty, witty, wicky, you know, it's yeah, yeah. the same, the same letter at the beginning. And we still remember that phrase. Yeah. The Ghostbusters used it. I came, I saw, I kicked their ass, you know, or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, <laughs> yeah. well I know, I know we've probably taken a little bit more. I know you got something to gotta, you gotta get going fun. to here. So yeah, this has been a blast. So let's ask one, the, the kind of my concluding question, then we'll wrap things up. So Michael, what is, what is happiness mean to you today? I know it's kind of a big question. So, but whatever, however you want to approach it, some people have taken it more complex or philosophical or just what brings you happiness. So what does happiness mean to you today, Michael? It's funny. So my very well-meaning parents would always say to me, we just want you to be happy. And so I had in my mind growing up, and God bless them, that was because they love me so much. But I always had in my mind this idea that if I'm not happy, it's almost like a failure kind of thing. Like the goal in life is to be happy. And I think what I've realized is that if you're trying to 
get happiness, it's the worst way to get happiness, right? So like, there's always going to be days where things are a little shitty. And there's always going to be periods in your life where things aren't great. And then there are these moments and these wonderful episodes of being human that are great. So yeah, I mean, there are the big picture things like I need creativity in my life. You know, I need to satisfy my curiosity. I need, um, I love owning my own business. I love writing in the mornings. But ultimately, I find that those are sort of just things that give me meaning. But often the things that make me the happiness are these you know, I had an experience recently with a person where we went to dinner and, and the thing ended up lasting till two in the morning, which is something I mm. never do anymore. And we were just kind of drinking a little wine and talking about ideas. And I don't know, made me happy, you know. So I, I think it's really ephemeral, but um, hard to grasp. But you got to just I, enjoy it while it's there. Know it's going to go away and know it's going to come back. Yeah, I appreciate that answer. And it's um, very, very, I love that the example that you just pulled, you know, it's like, it's a, it's that deep human connection that you got to have with someone, you got to build that relationship. And that's the stuff that matters at the end of the day. So thank you so much for sharing all of your insights. Where can people find out more about all the incredible stuff that you have going on, Michael? All right, so I'm going to do a real marketing copywriting thing, which most of my yeah. stuff doesn't directly do. But they always tell you have just one call to action, right? So I could tell sure. you my business address. I could tell you all that stuff. All I'm going to tell you is go to Amazon and type in The Hype Handbook by Michael F. Shine. And if you buy that book and read it, um, you know, I love selling books, but that's not where I make the bulk of my living. Where I make the bulk of my living is through my business. But if you read that book and, uh, and you like what you see there, um, that's the thing that's going to convince you to give me a call. And it's Microfame Media, but the company name's in the book as well. And um, I find that that's the best way for people to find out what I'm all about. There you go. Everybody go check out your and grab your copy of the Hype Handbook. And I will just have a really quick conversation with you listening right now. And I want to say if this is your very, very first episode, you could be anywhere on the internet. You could be listening to any other podcast, but you decided to be hanging out with Michael and myself today. And so I'm very, very grateful for that. And if you're returning, you know how much I appreciate you. I say it every single week. And the, the question, my one ask that I always have at the end of every single show is if you've listened to a story today that Michael has shared, maybe it was something from the very beginning about Michael's early origins with WrestleMania 2230, or if it was that you discovered that why you eat bacon in the morning, you know, maybe you learned something interesting. You can absolutely change someone's life if you share this episode with them. My life has absolutely been changed by podcaster. That's why I am a podcaster, just because I truly believe in everybody that comes on the show and the message that they share. So you can make someone's day and it'll it'll uh, make my day and, and Michael's day as well. So whether you choose to do that or not, I appreciate you so much. And Michael, thank you so much for being here, my friend. This has been a blast. Thank you for really creating a very different and very awesome conversation, Brandon. Hey, it's Brandon here again, and I have a quick favor to ask before you head off, and that is if you are listening to my voice right now and you are currently using either Apple Podcasts or Spotify, it would help me a ton if you could stop what you're doing, take five seconds to tap the number of stars that you think the show deserves. So if you're on Spotify, there's a place to add a star rating right underneath the name of the show. And if you're listening on Apple, just scroll down where you're seeing all the episodes and there's something that says tap to rate. Just tap the number of the stars that you think the show deserves. And you may not know this, but I typically spend over five hours of my own time each week just researching a guest on the show. And then there's the time that's spent recording the show, the intro, reaching out to new guests, and of course, all the editing, publishing, promoting that my amazing wife and high school sweetheart, Leah, helps me to manage. So all that to say, there's a lot that goes on just to get to the point where you listen to this episode. So if you appreciate the content and have 10, five to 10 seconds to spare, it would help a ton if you could leave a quick rating on the show. Extra credit if you choose to leave a review, but just tapping whatever stars you feel the show deserves helps a ton and it takes so little time. So whether you choose to do that or not, I so appreciate you and I'll talk with you soon.